0: Okay, good evening everyone, and uh, it's nice to see a good attendance at the beginning of term, although I'm on leave, I do remember what, how frenetic it can be at the beginning of term, so thanks for coming. And today we are uh, launching the special issue of uh, the Review of African Political Economy uh, on the Political Economy of HIV. So by way of a very quick introduction to then leave the floor to our three speakers tonight, I just wanted to say that uh, what is, I think, in my opinion, very exciting about this special issue is the way in which it links debates on HIV, AIDS, and interventions to combat the pandemic uh, to broader discussions about globalization and even development, class differentiation, and the vulnerability to the pandemic. And the, the contributions you have flyers about the special issue uh, challenge mainstream approaches to HIV-AIDS at uh, a very different level. Starting with the more practical level, which is the level of interventions uh, against HIV-AIDS, uh, there is a critique uh, sustained through the uh, contribution to the special issue to the biomedical approach to the pandemic and to the what the authors call the over-medicalization of approaches to HIV-AIDS uh, prevention and reduction. And uh, so one implication, very important practical implication of these uh, findings and articles is that we are not going to tackle the pandemic with the technical fixes uh, against uh, the disease. And what is required instead is a focus on the social and economic determinants of uh, uh, sexual uh, behaviour which puts people at risk. And uh, at an even more specific level, you see contributions in the special issue that deal with the microfinance and the cash transfers that are, uh, and we see that the dangers that uh, are attributing too much hope to these interventions uh, can carry for the uh, target beneficiaries of this intervention uh, at a more analytical level, more conceptual level, there is uh, this challenge to the mainstream view of how we understand the the way in which individuals uh, uh, take risks uh, when having sex and the way in which uh, individuals uh, put themselves in dangerous position. So if we start from uh, a bottom-up understanding of what drives uh, transactional sex and uh, the behaviour of individuals taking part in this, uh, the idea is we need to understand the sexual practices, uh, sexual norms that are uh, contextual in individual places And behind this, there are often gendered power relations that don't easily translate into blueprint solutions. So that's where I think uh, the different papers uh, in the special issue um, uh, contribute to the point towards. And uh, before leaving the floor to the speakers, uh, I would like to uh, remind you that the journal has kindly given to us uh, free access to the special issue until the end of November. So if you were able to Uh, publicize the existence of this special issue to your networks, that would be greatly appreciated. And now we have uh, three speakers, we have uh, Kevin Dean from uh, Northampton University, we have uh, Deborah Johnson from here at SOAS, we have uh, Justin uh, Parkhurst from the London School of Hygiene and uh, Tropical Medicine, and they will speak for 15-20 minutes each, uh, leaving the floor for some questions afterwards. Okay, so starting with uh, Deborah.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I have a PowerPoint, and I'm just going to get it up. Um, Before I talk about the paper that I have in the special issue, we have to say, you know, why did we choose to do the launch like this? Because our special issue has got six articles, four (coughs) debate pieces. We would like to have... You know, every one of those six authors and the, um, actually far more than six authors, every one of those people who was involved in, uh, in an article or in a debate piece here. But what we're hoping to do is to give you a flavour of the issues in the special issue and in the way that Matteo has outlined it with the various uh, pieces that talk about the um, general approach to HIV, that talk about interventions and that that, that um, talk about policy responses. And in a way, in this launch, uh, we have a flavor of each of those. Although be aware, there are d- um, debates even within the special issue itself. Um, so I've, I-, I was going to talk about the piece that I have in the special issue, paying the price of HIV in Africa, cash <clears throat> transfers, and the depoliticisation of HIV risk. Um, whenever I give a talk to a new group of people I do always say I have a stammer I'll get stuck on words and please just bear with me Um, so I want to give you just a short kind of background to the paper because the paper as it stands of course is built on a much longer wave of scholarship about (laughs) HIV and we can see very fundamentally it rests on this issue of how we should um, study HIV um, you know um, and Particularly the 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 um, politics and the implications of an of an individual focus versus one that is society wide, and there's a long-standing debate here: what is the best way to understand um, um, HIV transmission and risk? Now, often we sort of summarise the sort of um, the 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 dominant bio. Medical viewpoint as being one that focuses on individual choice. I think, to be fair, there is far those there is more complexity within um, the public health approach to HIV, and something perhaps we can talk about in in questions. But certainly, um, it's true that um, that a number of people writing on health issues have. Have said that the public health approach to HIV is substantially different to the health approaches to other health conditions in the sense of focusing very much on HIV risk as an outcome of individual choices. Um, And again, the broader um, concerns have been how much an individual focus can can ever lead to long run changes. And there's been a wider discussion about whether um, biomedical um, uh, or whether interventions that that have been aimed at changing behaviour have been successful, whether we can find cases where actually the behaviour change message has been successful in Sub-Saharan Africa, with a number of systematic reviews of the outcomes of those sorts of interventions, being very sceptical about whether there has been long-run success as a chair here at the And this has been written about by people like Alison Katz very effectively and very well. Um, at the same time, people have argued that um, that this individual focus on HIV is itself something that increases stigma towards people who are affected by HIV. It um, because it increases the um, the dialogue about blame and about and about faulty choices. And people like Eileen Stillwagen have written far more sort of st- f- far more strongly. <coughs> To say that the way that the the early discussions of HIV were constructed really focused on an otherness to African po- uh, p- populations in particular, that and they were built on a legacy of racism and of a view of um, exception, <coughs> exceptionalism about African sexuality. So. Um, there's been a much longer discussion about the individual focus within HIV policy. Um, what the article that I'm particularly uh, that, that that I'm talking about particularly focuses on a very on a much more recent form of HIV uh, risk reduction policy, and these are HIV-related cash transfers. Um, but I can but. but but there are very clear links in what I'm writing about to that longer run debate about the way we see HIV. So um, the article talks about. Um, HIV-related cash transfers, and I'm already seeing a few people kind of um, with questioning looks, and so I think it might be really helpful to put up something that shows you what the scale of these interventions are, and then I'll go back and kind of pressy them. This is not the easiest thing to read on the screen, but it gives you an idea of the extent to which there have been cash transfer interventions with the aim of reducing HIV risk. Now, I have to say, the very first one that is up there, which which is the... Kenyan National um, Orphans and Vulnerable Children Programme is actually one of the ones that gets included in this debate about uh, HIV related cash interventions but fundamentally was an intervention about reducing the poverty of orphans and other vulnerable children along the way HIV um, information was collected and it's and it seemed to show a big impact on HIV risk and so it's often in Included in this package of cash related, of of, um, HIV related cash transfers. But the others, you can see others in Kenya, uh, two in Malawi, one in Tanzania, one in Lesotho, one in Zimbabwe, and two in South Africa. Those two in South Africa are very new and are sort of still getting started. I'm going to go back a bit actually then and sort of say, well, you know. People like Sophie Harman have written about these projects, and you know, um, there's some seats here at the front, and and I've said, well, actually, it's not surprising that um, HIV-related cash transfers have been latched upon so, you know, with such vigour by 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 the policy world because they. They sort of seem to provide programs that are de- deliverable. You know that you can have measured outputs which can be monitored over time, and and they seem to be cost effective. So rather than trying to change whole health systems, you have um, not um, you have reasonably small amounts that sort of, you know can be targeted straight to individuals and seem to have an impact. So they provide policymakers with a package. With an intervention that is, um, you know, seems very feasible, very doable, and it's cost-effective. Um, at the same time, it is very much talking to a debate that's very fashionable within economics and within the health policy world. That is really focusing on on individual choice. You know, um, what is it that 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 um, drives people to make choices about their own health and about their own welfare? And so we see here perhaps kind of the fashion for cash transfers generally um, in a particular area of health. Um, so I t- talked a little bit about the projects which are here and as I said you know they are mostly in um, East and southern Africa and um, there have been a range of systematic reviews that actually l- look at the results of the project and try to work out the extent to which those those projects have made a big impact. Um, before talking about them, it's it's worth saying that, irrespective of what the systematic reviews have said, these cash transfer projects have received a very good press. So they've been talked up by the World Bank, they've been talked up by UNAID, um, they've um, they've received a great deal of sort of press attention at various times. Um, what is the evidence? Well, they. The, the um, projects that have received the best press are the ones, the um, Respect Project in Tanzania and the um, Schooling Income and, HR- and HIV Risk Project in Malawi. Um, and those seem to show, over the lifetime of the project, a, um, a um, change in, in HIV risk behaviours. Um, all of these. Projects are set up as um, randomised controlled trials, so you have an intervention arm or several arms. In fact, often these projects were designed with different amounts of cash being transferred, and these are compared to a control group, so people that don't receive anything. And so um, those th- those two particular projects have th- been the ones that have really been the darling of the sort of HIV world, and the results that you know that that they. Generated, which seem to show a significant difference in HIV risk between the intervention arm and the control arm are the ones that have been picked up in the press and in the policy <coughs> debate. But one of the things I wanted to show in this article is actually if you look across the piece, the, the effectiveness of these programmes is far less clear-cut, definitely far less clear-cut. Um, and I'll, I do summarise that in the article. Firstly, I say, well, actually, if you look at the four interventions that actually collect data on HIV prevalence um, or on HIV acquisition, in fact, which is you know, the number of people who have acquired HIV over a certain period of time, um, HIV acquisition is only lower in two of the, the um, projects that collected data. Um, in the other two, um, it was not really not so clear that HIV acquisition had been affected at all, um, and in one particular, um, that's the Malawi, um, just to go back and show you, that's the Malawi Incentive Programme, overall the project had no impact on HIV acquisition, but interestingly that was the average of having a, um, a, a um, impact on reducing HIV acquisition in women, but increasing it in men. The overall outcome was no impact. And that's really important. Why increasing it in men? And when you go back and look at the project documents, the authors there say, well, actually, you know, it's really... We can't really explain it. It's quite hard to explain, but it seems to be that the men who received cash as part of our intervention actually had more sexual partners. They had more sex. And, um, and you know, they didn't use condoms, and actually they were probably at more at risk after the receipt of the income. The women um, had less sex and were probably less at risk. And they average it out say, overall, the project has um, no impact. But the warning bells for you know all of us here are probably going off in the sense of saying, well, actually, in terms of understanding how the cash transfer projects are changing people's HIV risk, that differential outcome is really important and shouldn't be reported as no overall impact. Um, so where we have HIV data, it's not clear that the, that the projects were always reducing HIV risk, and it's important to look back at that Tanzania project, one of the ones that is used in all the headlines. But actually, when you look at um, when you look at why, it's because it reduced uh, sexually transmitted infections other than HIV. Um, so there was a significant difference in a range of t- treatable STIs in the intervention group, particularly the higher-paid intervention group, the ones that received more cash, but that didn't bear any relationship to other sexually transmitted infections, including um, herpes and, importantly, HIV. And so you can see that life was a bit, you know, it was a bit complicated for these interventions. They might reduce some elements of HIV risk, but not (coughs) others, and certainly we're not always reducing HIV acquisition rates. Um, I say this in the next bullet point, you know, that if you look at all of these projects, particularly those that didn't collect data on HIV itself, but looked at other factors, so, you know, whether people, the number of partnerships and um, the um, uh, people's sexual debut, in very few cases did the data move smoothly. They found really complex things they couldn't understand. They found in some cases that people might have... um, uh, that um, in in the Malawi project, um, when they um, gave people a um, the larger cash income, sometimes what that meant was that girls were actually got married more quickly, um, and perhaps they had fewer partners. But they were more likely to be married. They were more likely t- to become pregnant at a young age. So the indicators really didn't move in a simple, straightforward way. And for me, this goes back to the fact that the underlying picture that we're looking at is far more complex, and far more complex than the projects themselves um, are trying to model. Um, The data on how sustainable these interventions is also leads to questions. And where we have the longer term data, for some projects we see some of those behaviors um, don't remain changed over time. People go, um, go back and um, behave in ways that are similar to the control group. So it's not clear that you have a sustainable change after the project finishes. Um, I've put a point up there, how good is the RCT data? So we're talking about data that comes from randomised control trials. People argue a lot about RCTs and about what they're good at. Certainly, what they're not so good at is often at picking out at the causal pathways about why things happen, and this is an you know issue here that um, when we start to say, well, actually, why did the project have that kind of impact? The RCT data is not so good at explaining why that you know why the figures were what they were, and it raises a question if we really understand what the channels of impact are in these kinds of interventions. Um, I want to finish up by making the argument that I make in the article, which is this. Um, We we have to ask ourselves the question about um, whether cash transfers fundamentally change the environment that leads to high HIV risk. And this means um, rethinking why HIV prevalence rates are so high in particular environments. I just picked out two of the key elements of of that alternative (coughs) viewpoint here. number of authors, some of them in this room, have <coughs> argued that when we want to understand high HIV prevalence rates in African countries, we have to do that as a um, through understanding the way that partnership norms, norms around sex and intimacy, have changed in environments of deeply unequal development, where there is large amounts of circular migration um, and, um, and often great income inequality great inequality in um, in um, social status um, and um, and here I think we have to ask the question whether cash transfers are able to fundamentally change um, those patterns um, and I think we can look to the wider literature on cash transfers and indeed to other interventions in in this special issue. That <coughs> You know, question whether, whether cash transfers can, can, can lead to a long-run change in the distribution of income within, um, com, within com, mm, com, mm, communities, within areas, um, and um, in particular whether changing income will actually change people's HIV risk. I'm not going to talk about that further because it's something that Kevin is going to be talking about, I think that the second element that I wanted to pick out, which is this, which is we also are very well aware that patterns of health provisioning, the character of the health sector, fundamentally affects HIV transmission. And it does that in a range of ways. It does that because of um, the link between people's um, health status and the, and the rate at which they will acquire HIV. It does that because, it, because we also know that people's ability to access antiretrovirals Drugs that change mother-to-child transmission fundamentally affect HIV transmission. Um, The the access and quality of those health services are crucial. And again, we can question whether cash transfers will fundamentally change that. And we can talk more widely to the literature that evaluates whether cash transfers improve health. And what they seem to be really good at doing, especially when they are predicated on people's use of health services, is they're good at getting people to go to clinics or, you know, to go to um, uh, child health um, uh, appointments, for example. What it's not so clear that they're good at doing is actually helping people have better health. And one of the reasons often why that's often raised is that, you know, cash cashed. Transfers where they're incentivized at getting people to use the health system can get people there in the first place. But what's crucial is the quality of the health services that people receive when they're there. And it's not clear that that you know the programs we're looking at are going to do anything to improve the quality of health services. So to end up, the argument I make in the paper is that we you know, instead need to consider more fundamental changes in the social and economic organisation to change health risks. And those changes are changes both at the domestic level, but at the international scale as well. Um, t- two examples. Why at the international scale? The ability to um, to govern the health conditions of migrant workers is a crucial one in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and it's something that that domestic governments themselves are not able to, um, or you know, have limited power of changing. Um, and Secondly, the um, con- the conditions under which governments um, are able to um, promote economic growth to um, deal with patterns of uneven development are are ones that are constrained often by uh, by um, by the international character of um, a, the um, the um, international evaluation of. Um, of economic policy and by fiscal rules over government spending. So, I w- so just to finish up, I argue that cash transfers simply avoid these big questions. They they ask people to um, change their behaviour, um, but without changing the environment in which high rates of prevalence have been brought about. They are um, they are attractive to policymakers, but they avoid the big and difficult questions. So, thank you.
2: Okay, well I'm not going to sit like Deborah did, I'm going to kind of wander around in a kind of fidgety way. Um, So uh, my name is Kevin Dean, I'm currently based at the University of Northampton and it's really nice to see some colleagues and some uh, past and present students here today, so thanks for coming along. Um, It's also nice for me to be back at SOAS, this is where I did my undergraduate uh, Masters, uh, PhD, so uh, it's really nice to, to, to be back once again. And finally, it's nice to be back uh, presenting with Deborah and Justin, who just happened to, enter, uh, to be my, uh, my two PhD supervisors, so I'm sure they're uh, tired already of hearing me uh, banging on about things like wealth, HIV, and uh, political economy. So today I'm going to present a paper. Um, that, that I co-authored with Dania Long. Actually, Dania is really the first author of this, so I, I apologise to her in her absence of the, the botch job I'm going to do on her paper. Um, but this came out with some analysis that Dania did um, and towards her MSc uh, dissertation, I think, in uh, economics here at soas and it's something that we sub- subsequently worked on together. It's also the topic that uh, I didn't end up studying in my PhD, but it's where I started. So I'm going to be showing you some of the initial data that really sparked my interest and passion um, for the issue of of HIV. And and I guess, broadly speaking, what I'm going to do today is give you a very small amount of background, present some data to you, and I guess I want to make a case for um, why political economy is is necessary when we're studying the issue of HIV and the different kind of insights that a political economy approach can bring. From thinking about transmission, testing, and also interventions. So, that's generally uh, a quick overview of what I want to do today. So, some very broad brush uh, backgrounds. I'm arguing certainly that um, HIV is still primarily described as a a disease of poverty. And this is certainly the impression that that you get from uh, a huge amount of literature. Uh, there, are, there are many, many references where, where people refer to this, this being a disease driven by by poverty. And I guess to some extent it's quite understandable where you can think about how uh, you know lack of education, lack of access to condoms might uh, uh, put people who are poor at greater risk of HIV infection. But and I'm going to kind of pick this apart a little bit and show you some data that might actually challenge that kind of view. This isn't as straightforward as, as, as we think it is, this relationship between poverty and HIV. Uh, the, the reason this is important uh, is because the way you understand uh, HIV transmission and prevalence rates frames the kind of interventions that you might uh, put forward to, to, to deal with the epidemic and it certainly touches upon uh, the kind of issue of cash transfers that Deborah's has just uh, spoken about. It also Im- impacts uh, funding processes and has a big impact on the research agenda. And so I think this is a really, really important topic for a wide range of reasons that, that are key to helping us meet the, the UN, UNA's targets. So I'm actually going to start with uh, some data. That's probably what you were, you were not expecting in a political economy uh, talk, but I think the data is a really important place to start. Now I'm just going to show you uh, some data from the 2011-2012 survey. But there have been, I guess, three demographic and, and health surveys um, conducted in Tanzania so far. As you can see, 2003 and 2004, 2007 8. 2008. And basically, uh, these surveys capture data on a, a huge range of different topics around demography and characteristics of households. And certainly, for, for our interest and purpose, th- they ask questions about sexual behaviour uh, in, in a range of different ways, knowledge... Uh, and also uh, they asked the participants if they will agree to, to an HIV test. So we have biological data and we have behavioural data. These are constructed to be representative of kind of national populations so we hope we can extrapolate the results from these surveys to the broader population and I guess at the moment these are kind of the gold standard in terms of what we know about HIV uh, within, within populations. This is replaced older ways of measuring HIV, which primarily centered around antinatal clinics. So it's the best we have. It's not perfect and I'm, I'm happy to take some questions on you know, the, the limitations within the data, but it's the best we have at the moment, in my opinion. Justin may, may not agree. <laughs> okay, so what I'm going to do is present to you uh, a few slides that show uh, the relationship between different variables and uh, and wealth, and we have the population divided into uh, five wealth quintiles. We have the poorest quintile uh, on the left-hand side, and the wealthiest on the right-hand side. And this is, I guess, uh, one of the standard questions that's asked in, in the uh, in the DHS survey. Um, you know, did you use a condom the last time you had sex? And we can quite clearly clearly see here we have. Uh, men in orange and women in blue, we can see that if you're in the wealthiest 20% of the population, you, you report that you're more, more likely to have used a condom the last time you had sex compared to uh, the, the poorest Quintan. And we can see there there's quite a clear kind of wealth gradient. Condom use, or reported condom use, uh, increases uh, with, with wealth. <coughs> we see a, a similar thing. Not quite as uh, uh, as clear, but when partners, when our uh, participants are asked whether they've had two or more sexual partners in the last 12, 12 months, um, we see that wealthy wealthy men report slightly lower levels, I guess, of sexual activity than poorer men. It's less. The, the pattern is less clear for women, but again, you can see here uh, one of the challenges with the data that we have a big difference in levels of sexual behaviour reported by by women compared to men. Um, This is sometimes referred to as, you know, secretive females or swaggering uh, males or a a bit of both. But there is some kind of story here, certainly for wealthy men, with with, uh, wealthy men saying they're having, I guess, less risky sex than than poorer men. And again, uh, tying in reasonably well with the previous slide. However, when it comes to uh, HIV prevalence, and, and this was, I guess, the data that first Captured my imagination when thinking about HIV. Deborah actually showed the 2003 uh, 2004 data in, in one of my lectures uh, here. What we actually see is that um, for both men and women, um, it's actually the wealthiest 20% of the population that has the highest uh, uh, prevalence of, of HIV. <laughs> Now that kind of goes against everything that we've seen in the previous two slides and the previous two slides are fairly representative across a range of different types of sexual behaviours and knowledge. In the wealthy always report more, more knowledge and, and, and less risky behaviours than the poor, but it turns out they have the highest rates of HIV. And this pattern, although it's, it's changing over time, I'm just presenting to you the 2011-12 data, we see the same or similar patterns in, in the other two surveys. We're not seeing a huge rebalancing of this, of this trend. Dania discusses this in detail in the article, so if you're interested, please do have a look. Uh, we, we see some you know, subtle changes within quintiles, but the overall gradient uh, remains, uh, remains the same. And again, this, I, I guess, challenges a lot of our preconceptions about what we think is driving HIV, and also what we think we should, we should do about it. Again, it's not perfect, we are using quite high-level aggregates, but I think the data is is fairly clear. Now, Justin has done a huge amount of data mining on this topic, and and we see actually that if you look at uh, a broader range of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, this pattern is not an isolated example. We see this pattern in many different countries. In other countries, we see a slightly different pattern, so it might be kind of a U-shape, it might be more flat in higher prevalence countries, but in no country do we see the gradient working in the opposite way, the gradient working uh, with the poorest having the highest rates of HIV. So, th- so this is a pattern I guess what I'm trying to say is more generalizable. it's not just about Tanzania, this is about um, uh, a broader issue that, that we're dealing with within sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, Macerate how kind of crunch all these numbers and put them through some statistical models and find out that once you control for all the background characteristics, that they come to a slightly weaker conclusion, but more you know as important, which is HIV does not disproportionately affect the poorest in sub-Saharan Africa. I think that's a really uh, strong uh, and interesting conclusion. Now, I could be challenged on this. I'm giving you quite, I guess, a one-sided argument here. Uh, but from, for, in my view, this, uh, this pattern has been accepted by the HIV community, but it's, it's generally been sidelined. So people say, yes, we acknowledge that this pattern exists, but reducing poverty will still be at the core of long-term solutions. So there's been a kind of acknowledgement and a parking of this issue rather than a real engagement um, uh, with, with, with this topic. And this is one of the reasons why I keep coming back to it. Nothing's happening in, in policy-making circles. Nothing is happening uh, within research circles either. I mean, I could be corrected, but I don't—I I have not seen one paper that, that's investigated uh, this issue in relation to specifically wealthy people. Everything is about poor people. Cash transfers are about poor people. Microfinance is, is about poor people. So this is why, as I said, time and time again, I keep coming back to this issue. No, nothing has really moved on from at um, the, the, the initial time when, when I started to look at this. So what, what, what led to this kind of parking of the issue? Well, there, there are a range of arguments that you, you come across. We have some quite uh, fairly weak arguments around well, Africa's the poorest continent, that's where all the HIV is, surely there must be a link to poverty. Um, we have this kind of argument, uh, and Berger talks about this, and she kind of says, well, okay, Pe- people just assume that once this pattern is known, that the wealthy will they'll make a rational response to the epidemic, and they'll be the first uh, section of society to change their behaviours. Yeah. So they're more rational, they have better education, better access to condoms. Although we know this, this is here, this pattern exists, some, you know, this is going to change quicker for wealthy people than it will do for poor people. And a, lot of, uh, a number of kind of rational choice, <coughs> economic models kind of try and play out these, these various scenarios. They actually struggle with the, with the wealth issue, actually. Uh, Emily Oster wrote about three or four references of one paper um, trying to prove something around uh, rational responses and the opportunity cost of having sex. And she ended up dropping the, the wealth uh, variable because it wasn't fitting in, in, fitting in into a, her opportunity cost story. Uh, and then we have other biases within the data. Those of you who, who have any understanding of HIV will obviously know that, you know, we, we expect the wealthiest to uh, to live longer anyway. We expect the wealthiest to live longer with HIV. We expect the wealthiest to have better access to general medical treatment and also to uh, uh, to drugs, and, and we expect them to be more able to adhere to drug regimes. So this biases the data upwards. So. Uh, what we're picking up is prevalence, a snapshot of infection, rather than new new incidences, and so that that could account for uh, why why we see high prevalence rates in the wealthy. It's just because we're keeping them alive for longer. So these these are some of the arguments that you hear within the literature that, that try and uh, detract attention away from from this from this issue. Now I think we can deal with the first argument fairly uh, fairly quickly. Um, you know, I think. One of the simple stories <laughs> uh, as to why Africa has the highest rates of HIV relate to uh, a debate and a discussion about the origins of the epidemic. It could be something as simple as that. And we often see that, again, if, if we're looking at a country, on a country basis, you know, HIV isn't concentrated in the poorest countries in, in the continent. HIV is often concentrated in some of the wealthiest countries in, in the continent. Countries such as South Africa and Botswana—it's not the poorest countries, and it's not the poorest people either, necessarily. There are also lots of other biases within within the data. Uh, we, we we can argue that prevalence rates for the wealthier bias upwards due to to the wealthy living longer, but also prevalence rates for the poorest may be biased upwards just just because people can become poorer after infection. Now again, the micro-level evidence is is I guess. More mixed than you might expect, but I, I on, you know, turning, flipping that round, I, I can, not think of many scenarios in which somebody becomes upwardly socially mobile having become infected with HIV, and so we have arguably uh, biases in the data for the poorest uh, uh, people in society who, who become poorer after infection. So there's a kind of counterbalance, and this isn't really discussed much in the public health literature. We hear a lot about. The wealthy living longer, we don't hear much about um, kind of post-infection poverty and, and the influence that can have on uh, on prevalence rates. Um, there, there are, again, some surveys that suggest the wealthy haven't actually changed their behaviours as much as people might anticipate. Um, and again, I've already hinted there are some big problems with uh, relying on self-reported sexual behaviour. Uh, certainly, uh, I think this is something Deborah and I have talked about quite a lot. You know, we we. Uh, you know, we, we, we suspect that, they may well, that the answers are, are socially conditioned, right? The wealthy, uh, they know the, the social context, when a DHS survey a numerator comes around and asks them how many sexual partners they've had in the last month, they, they know how to play the game, and they, they know the, the, the moral, socially uh, positive answer is, is to say, I haven't had any. And so again, you know, this, path, this data itself might be, uh, be uh, influenced by, by wealth. So, there, there are a lot of issues. Hopefully, I've dealt with some of them, but, it, but I think this remains uh, uh, a really important issue. Now, I, I did want to take this a bit further today, but um, I'm having some SPSS issues. I w- I'm also interested in not just prevalence, but uh, access to testing. This is another big argument as to why the wealthiest live longer. Uh, it's also increasingly becoming the focus of UNAIDS. UNAIDS are less interested now in transmission, more interested in. Uh, getting people onto drugs. So we have a question within the uh, the DHS survey. Have you ever been tested for HIV? And um, as expected, we can see a, a clear pattern here. we can see that the wealthiest men and women are more likely to opt to say yes I've had an HIV test than the poor one. And, and again, that's something we would, would kind of expect. But there is also some other data. Within the uh, DHS surveys, um, which relates to um, whether individuals within the survey agreed to uh, have some of their blood taken for uh, an HIV test within the survey. Yeah? So this isn't, have you ever taken an HIV test? This is, did you let the, the survey guy take some of your blood for, for for a test? And instead of having a, I guess a, a clear pattern where the wealthiest should be more likely to agree uh, to give blood. It turns out they're not. It turns out they are, are as likely, if not slightly like, slightly more likely, than the poorest to, to refuse to give a blood sample. Now, I've become quite fixated on this this bit of data, purely because this is data on uh, what people have actually done. This isn't data on what they said they've done, whether they've had a number of sexual partners or had an HIV test. This is people... Agreeing to test or not, and we see a very different pattern when, when we look at this, uh, uh, this issue. Going back to the previous slide, just very quickly, although we have uh, higher um, rates of being tested within, within the wealthy, and this is, this is the work that Daniel and I are now beginning to do, we're, we're beginning to look at well, what's the relationship between uh, infection rates and, and testing, because you know are the greater... Uh, testing rates within the wealthy, are, are they high enough to make up for the higher rates of infection? As it turns out, and I, I hope you will have some data to, to prove this at some point, it turns out that people in the wealthiest queen are as likely to be unaware of their status as, as people in the poorest queen Again, another conclusion that, that begins to, to challenge this sort of simplistic narrative that we hear. Okay, so this is basically the last slide. So, you know, Thinking back to the the theme of our special issue, you know, the the political economy of HIV, what what can a a political economy approach bring to to, uh, helping us unpack this relationship? Well, the first thing I think a political economy approach can do, and I think this is what the special issue is trying to do, is to bridge the gaps between different bodies of literature. And I think, you know, within the special issue, we have people writing from a range of different disciplinary backgrounds. This is bringing together different pockets of uh, literature, you know, from development studies, from political economy, from economics, from public health, from epidemiology. I think political economy as something that's truly interdisciplinary is well placed to bring those different themes together. I hope a political economy approach can can shed light on some of the dynamics of transmission. Clearly I'm thinking that we move beyond these discrete categories of poverty, of wealth, and away from the kind of crude data I'm presenting to you. uh, And and we, we begin to look at how transmission is influenced by ongoing social processes, processes, by processes of differentiation, inequality and relationships between rich and poor and, importantly, between men and women as well. I think uh, we could also begin to challenge some of the kind of rational choice models and approaches to HIV, and that's not just in terms of transmission but also in terms of testing, this assumption that the wealthiest are, are more likely to engage in Health-seeking behavior or better health behaviors than the poor, and in that way, we can again, you know, challenge quite, uh, you know, <laughs> racist and, and negative stereotypes about African sexual behavior and, and behavior in general. Uh, we can comment on interventions such as microfinance, microfinance and cash transfers. Again, this is touching upon what, what Deborah's talked about, but you know, these aren't uh, interventions that are targeted at wealthy women. These. Are based on, you know, specific views of, of the epidemic. We can, we can think about the policy-making process. We, we can think about, you know, who are the gatekeepers to policy? Who's, a, who's applying to the World Bank and the Global Fund for, for money to intervene in HIV? You know, who's controlling these processes? Uh, who stands to lose from any change in, in you know, either ba- imbalances between wealth and poor or between men and women? It's often actually wealthy men who stand to lose quite a lot, as it turns out. <clears throat> we can also think about methodology and how that influences uh, funding processes as well. So again, you know, one of the reasons I think the cash transfers and microfinance are so fashionable is because they adhere to certain um, methodolo- methodological frameworks for evaluation, you know, randomised control trials, these, these are perfect. Actually there are a, a different set of more politicised interventions that it would not be so uh, easy to, to study through these kinds of tools, but that would arguably uh, challenge some of these uh, kind of power dynamics. Okay, so just to really finish, um, hopefully you found that interesting, and some of your preconceptions about the epidemic have been challenged. Um, as I said, that the wealthy is still not just missing in research, but missing in the response. And I think, you know, as I said, if the UN wants to meet. That um, their the, uh, the global targets for universal access to treatment and for zero infections—you know—we need to begin to think, think about, and incorporate the wealthy into, into interventions. And, as ever, as a researcher, I'm bound to say we need more research. But again, you know, this section of population, however hard they are to get at, uh, sometimes uh, need need to be incorporated into into the research agenda. Okay, thank you.
3: Good afternoon, or good evening now, almost. Um, I don't know if I'll sit or stand. I might get up at some point. Um, so my name's Justin Parkhurst. I work at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I know a few of uh, my colleagues and the students uh, from there are here, uh, which is just up the road. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit. I have the, envy, I, you know, the great position here of coming last, so I can comment on or reflect on anything that came up in, in Deborah Kevin's uh, talks, which I totally agree with uh, what, what they're saying. I'm also presenting the paper that I co-authored with a colleague, Moritz Huntsman, is is one of the debate pieces, which is also a nice uh, form in which one can kind of think, step back and think more broadly about some of these things that we're seeing. And our paper is about what we call breaking out of silos and the need for, as the title says there, the need for critical paradigm reflection in HIV prevention. I only have a few slides. I don't have a lot of, of text on it, so I'll just talk to them more broadly. But fundamentally, I think, you know, what we wanted to comment on is, is to reflect on the fact that... Um, maybe I will stand up there. Lots of people here who might not be able to see. Um, fundamentally, we recognize that the HIV response over the last three decades has, has often been captured by particular ideas and fashions. And so, you know, Debra mentioned the example of um, cash transfers, and Kevin talked about this idea of poverty fueling the spread of HIV and how that shapes the political response. But we've seen that many times, um, you know, in, in many ways. So we've seen a focus on providing IEC, Information, Education, and Communication, as, as the appropriate uh, response to HIV, despite for years finding very little actual impact on sexual uh, behavior. Um, or we see kind of, you know, other things becoming the, the flavor of the month. We see you know, a lot of people criticize this focus on, uh, Kevin referred to it in terms of focus on the poor, but this idea of, of underdevelopment and, and, and let's look at HIV as a condition of underdevelopment, without necessarily looking at where the infections are actually coming from within a country, and so and so we kind of said, well, why is this happening? And this, that's the idea of this critical paradigm reflection: why is it that we tend to focus on um, siloed, narrow ways, over-reductionist ways of thinking about HIV prevention, and how can we get out of that? So in the paper, uh, we talk about three particular silos uh, that we highlight and that we, we flag up and give some examples of and, and many of these came actually from my co-author, Moritz, who, who at times challenged me to think about where I've often perhaps put too much of my own focus. The first one is, is sexual versus iatrogenic or non, uh, non-sexual medically induced transmission. <clears throat> so if we look at the field of HIV prevention, from, from the 1980s when the virus was identified, people knew that it could be spread through bodily fluids, um, and they knew it could be transmitted through unsafe medical procedures as well, uh, through unsafe inject, uh, you know, needles uh, being reused in health centers, blood transfusions, and the like. But that became a very early target for policy interventions, and in many countries that was greatly stamped down. But it's not necessarily gone away completely. And yet we see almost no attention to this now in the international policy response. Uh, I went to the UNAIDS website and I put in iatrogenic, and, and almost nothing comes up. Uh, Just in terms of their general search Uh, Moritz my my co-author has done work in Tanzania like like um, And and pointed out that the national strategic plan the national HIV policy reports that um, 2% of infections are due to unsafe drug injections, so unsafe illegal drug injecting sharing needles 98% are due to sexual transmission and 0.0% due to unsafe medical procedures Now that's just a phenomenal statistic, absolutely no medically induced infections in in a country like Tanzania, which uh, in in the paper, we cite a source saying that about 30% of hospitals have no facilities to diagnose HIV, and we know that there's a lot of underfunding and shortages. Now I think one of the reasons that this has become, in a sense, a silo of thinking is that many people are scared that if they start challenging the dominant narrative, they'll be labeled denialists. So there was especially in the 1980s and early 1990s, a very big push by some academics, particularly one or two in the United States, who argued that uh, the HIV leading to AIDS as a virus-caused a, a syndrome was false. Um, I think over the last two decades, we've had overwhelming evidence that that theory is flawed. Um, but it was argued that it was all medically induced, that putting people on antiretroviral treatments, like AZT in the early years, was actually causing their immune system, uh, systems to fail. And so I think after that experience, many people are, felt that if you criticize medical uh, treatment, you are might be aligning yourself with this discredited um, and widely frowned upon uh, way of thinking. But, but we know, we can go back, you know, before that controversy, we know that unsafe blood supplies, unsafe use of, of you know, injecting equipment and the like can spread HIV. And even if it's a small, uh, occasional infection, what occasional iatrogenic transmission can do is it can link otherwise isolated networks of individuals. And so if you have a community with a high prevalence of HIV attending the same health center as a community with a low prevalence of HIV and there's one or two uh, cross-infections due to medical transmission, it it might be a small percentage of your infections, but it could, in a sense, multiply uh, your dynamic. So so it's just one of the examples that we think thinking has been focused in silos in that it's not allowing engagement with these potentially important prevention uh, approaches. The second silo thing, and I think that's come up a lot in the previous examples, um, is is kind of the social versus medical silos. So this idea that HIV has been over-medicalized is banged on about by the social science community. Um, and, and you know we have occasional conferences on social science and humanities of HIV where we lament how HIV response is still over-medicalized. And this focus on treatment in particular, this inability to recognize uh, the, the, the social and structural dynamics um, of, 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 of sexual change. You know, some great examples of that come out from Kevin and, and Deborah's uh, papers as well. This idea that randomized controlled trials are, are a simple intervention that you should... Not randomized control. excuse me. Um, cash transfers can be tested in randomized trials and you can just assume generalizability. This comes out of a medical you know, silo of thinking that thinks treatment is generalizable. A cash transfer is a treatment. Now, the social world some of the students from London School of Hygiene will have heard me say this before, is fundamentally different from the natural world. Right? The reason why an intervention of giving somebody money works, the actual causal mechanism, is not universal. Right? If I give you money, anyone in this room, you'll use it differently because of your social context and your personal context. It's not like giving a drug. If I give everybody in this room a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, it's going to work at the cellular level through the same mechanism. It's going to stop viral, DNA, viral RNA transcribing into DNA within the nucleus. That's what you know reverse transcriptase inhibitors do. Cash doesn't do the same thing for everybody. So to be going into to communities on the other side of the world, totally different social and structural context, giving people money. And then just assuming that it's going to work for everybody in the same way is, is, is patently ridiculous. And, and, the, and the data show that. Now, some of these studies are better designed than others. Some of them do involve process evaluation which try and study it. But that example you gave, Deborah, of, of the Malawian conclusions that, that the impact um, was, uh, what's, what's the term, I think, was, was um, there was no impact, no causal, the conclusions, uh, there was no overall impact when they actually found it reduced risk in women and increased risk in men, just again shows that obviously people have sex for different reasons. Men and women in this community are using money for different reasons. Obviously, if, if men in the community have, a, tr- have kind of a tradition of spending cash on sex workers, then giving them cash is a bad idea. Right? Um, but, who, but did anyone think of going in before this intervention and asking people, who are you having sex with and why? Right? That level of background investigation is being missed by over-medicalizing the disease. That said, we also make the point that social scientists sometimes are over-siloed as well. For a lot of social scientists, it's always sex, and it's always about sex, and it's always about broad sexual things, when in fact, technical interventions, medical interventions can have a great deal of impact. I think one of the reasons why UNAIDS is going down the route of universal test and treat, trying to get everybody onto drugs immediately, is because they've tried and struggled so hard to change sexual behavior. It's, it is incredibly complicated. But that doesn't mean medical interventions are... Useless. Reducing viral load by increasing the number of people on treatment does reduce infectivity, and that's a good thing if you're trying to reduce HIV infection. Um, male circumcision, hugely controversial among some social scientists, but it does seem to show protective effect if it's, if it's taken up uh, by men and if it's desired by men. So social scientists can think in our silos as well. Sometimes we think it's all sexual, or that's the only thing we should focus on, or we dismiss all medical responses, when obviously it's, it's a combination of both that matters. All right, the last silo of thinking that we flag up in the paper is biological versus behavioral drivers. This is where Moritz, my, my colleague, really challenged me, because a lot of my work uh, up until now has been on structural approaches and structural drivers uh, of behavior, in a sense. And Moritz has said, you know, basically said, look, there's, there's this core body of academic literature that's really looking at um, co-infections with other, with other uh, conditions, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where we have very high rates of prevalence and where we seem to have a per-sex transmission rate that's much higher than in the West. So why is it that the infectivity uh, in sub-Saharan Africa seems to be much higher for each individual act? And there's pieces of information. It's not it's not conclusive, but there are pieces of information that shows co-infections with things like malaria, TB, helminth infections, schistosomiasis, and the like, um, could make individuals much more susceptible or much more infective. Um, now, for some reason, this has really been excluded from a good amount of the mainstream... HIV policy response at the global level. It's not talked about much at UNAIDS. Again, people are often worried that they're going to be branded denialists or they're somehow outside of mainstream thinking. But you know, looking for other aspects of susceptibility or infectivity is, is actually part of mainstream uh, HIV prevention. If you look at the reason of lowering viral load by putting people on treatment, that's to reduce infectivity. Male circumcision is meant to reduce susceptibility. So why certain medicalized uh, treatments have and interventions have become mainstream and others haven't, it's just one of the things we flag up. In the, I should say, in the paper, we don't aim to resolve any of these conflicts. You know, to resolve that, you'd want to have engagement with a couple of dozen experts in each of the fields and in a kind of nice, rational, coherent way. But we, we merely flag up that we have these silos of thinking and we think that could hold back the prevention response. Then we try and go into a little bit the origins, and, and this is where we kind of link back to the political economy uh, and the themes of the special issue. Where are these silos of thinking coming from? And we, we talk about two different ones. We, we say there's political ideational and institu- institutional or economic. What do we mean by political ideational? We talk a little bit about disciplines and about, and about values. So disciplines I mean in terms of like the disciplines, academic disciplines in which we're trained. So certain academic disciplines learn to do randomized control trials. And for them, randomized control trials, they're told from day one, you know, are the best way to gather evidence about, about an intervention. And so what we see is randomized control trials often being applied when they're not necessarily that useful. Cash transfers, I think, is, the, is a great case of this. What are we actually, by doing an experimental trial, we guarantee that what, what we find was due to our intervention. That's what they're designed for. But they're not designed for generalizability, I mentioned uh, you know, before. The reason why you use money in a particular way is not necessarily generalizability. And a randomized trial doesn't tell you that. <laughs> um, and so it's this idea that a randomized trial is good for everything when it comes out of a biomedical and a natural science training. If you're trained in clinical medicine, you're trained in uh, biochemistry, randomized trials are a very, very good source of evidence. But you have a whole separate body of evidence that's convincing you of the generalizability, your whole knowledge of biochemistry and human anatomy and so on. The social world doesn't work that way. So this, this focus on randomized controlled trials comes out of a particular <coughs> disciplinary approach and we see it being applied when it's not necessarily the most appropriate or the most useful. Because what, what is a, a conditional cash transfer? All it really tells you is that when you pay some people to do stuff, they do more of that stuff, right? So so if you, if you pay people to go to health services more, they'll go to health services more. If you pay, pay people to stop smoking, they'll stop smoking more. If you give them a large enough cash transfer, you'll get almost anything you want. Now we don't need new <clears throat> randomized trials to learn that human beings respond to economic incentives. Right? The entire discipline of economics knows this. Um, and so you know, if, I'm sure if you gave a cash transfer of $10 million for someone to stay HIV free, you'd have a pretty high success rate. But that really doesn't tell you anything about the dynamics of, of, of HIV in that community. Similarly, though, you have the disciplinaries, the, the, the silos in the social sciences, you know, being trained in social sciences that everything is complex and everything is behavioral does sometimes mean you put blinders on to understand where technical interventions, where medical interventions can be particularly useful. What about values, then? When I talk about values, this is where... Um, I think we see some of the unconscious biases creeping in. I think, I think values, our personal values, I think help explain a lot of what Kevin's uh, talking about in his, in his presentation. I think one of the reasons why this narrative of poverty driving the spread of HIV persists, even though it's more complicated, is due to the fact that it leads to an alignment of our personal values. It, it's, co- it's it's a cognitive process that's often unconscious. So we all believe poverty's a bad thing. I imagine everyone in this room would agree that Poverty is bad and we should try and reduce it. And we all agree that HIV is a bad thing and we probably all agree that we should try and reduce HIV rates. So when when somebody says poverty spreads HIV, it makes perfect sense to us. It's consonant with our values. But if someone says, actually, wealth wealth is uh, correlated with higher HIV rates, all of a sudden we're in a situation of cognitive dissonance. And there's a lot of cognitive psychology out there that says when you're in a state of cognitive dissonance, you react in certain ways. And some of those ways are to ignore the evidence or to try and explain the evidence away. Now... Just by pointing out the fact that the wealthier in Tanzania have more HIV, that doesn't mean poverty is a good thing. We just have to be aware of, of the realities of it. Extreme poverty is very isolating. If you're very isolated, it's very hard to contract an infectious disease that spreads through social networks. And that's what HIV is. A similar argument, a, a point I made uh, is on this is related to gender inequality. So just like poverty, we hear a lot of people say gender inequality fuels the spread of HIV. Because we know of cases where women who have no control over their, the sexual relationship are at risk. But extreme gender inequality is actually isolating and therefore protective against HIV. If you look at the worst countries in the world, the ones that rank worst in terms of gender equality, they have very low HIV rates. Because if you can't leave the home without a chaperone, you're not going to be having a lot of sex. Now that doesn't mean gender inequality is a good thing, right? But what it leads to is cognitive dissonance in our mind that makes it very easy for us to see the pieces of evidence on gender equality that lead to HIV risk and to come up with an explanation which might not be uh, that correct. Now, does that matter? It does matter if we do stuff things like try and bring people out of poverty thinking it's going to reduce their HIV risk. If we start leading, you know, doing income-generating activities assuming it's going to reduce their risk, and they end, and these people they get they get wealthier, which is good for many things, but if they start traveling to towns more, and in towns there's higher background rates of HIV, or if they start having wider sexual networks, which we often see with the wealthy, then we might be missing a very important transmission dynamic because we were based on an oversimplified explanation. So yes, poverty reduction is important, Gender gender equality is important, but it doesn't necessarily mean all good things go together and all bad things go together. And our values bias us from seeing that. In terms of institutional economic uh, origins of the bias, uh, or origins of these silos, we just talk a little bit about how you know, much of the global uh, HIV response is structured through institutions which have their, their norms and their rules of functioning. Uh, my co-author looked at how, you know, okay, how, how, how funding bodies that fund Tanzania and HIV are unable to take on more complex social or structural responses because they have these institutional mandates. And I'm being told I'm pretty much out of time. So this is just my last slide. And our final conclusions are, are thinking around how do we make progress in this. And one thing that we don't do, which Kevin did do, is we, don't say, we say we're not asking for more research, right? But we're just debate piece. So we're saying we don't necessarily need more research all the time, but what we need to do is refocus how we're thinking. Because you know, 25 years ago, Packer and Epstein said, you know, too many studies have taken an authoritative tone which is not warranted by the data, and doing so has encouraged a premature disclosure of African AIDS research. So 25 years later we're basically saying this is still going on, a premature closure um, because we're taking too authoritative a tone when things are more complicated. And and we have a very brief, you know, three recommendations or three ways that we think these might help break down some of the silos in moving forward. We recognize that structural approaches to HIV is a new and emerging uh, theme in the international global health community and so what we argue is we can use this as a window of opportunity to redefine the norms of how we respond to HIV. (coughs) So first off, we should be aware of our biases, and we should be aware of our silos. When going into HIV prevention, we should always ask ourselves, are we doing what I've been trained to do, and therefore what I think my discipline tells me I should do, or am I approaching it based on the actual real dynamics on the ground? I think we're at a time where we could try and reformulate best practice. So the role of hierarchies of evidence, Uh, Deborah said, people debate the roles of randomized control trials. There should be no debate. It's pretty cut and dry what randomized control trials are and what they're for. They're designed to guarantee internal validity, which means you know that you had an effect. They don't tell you anything about external validity. You need separate evidence for that, and that should be crystal clear. So the fact that we're still having these concerns, sometimes they are transferable. You just need to have different evidence to explain it. So we could reformulate best practice. And we should begin from a position of complexity. Anytime someone goes in and says, I have a solution, uh, a single solution, a simple solution, something that you can do at one point in time, should raise alarm bells. And at the moment, it's kind of the other way around. It's much harder to convince the global HIV community in terms of the the people setting policy and spending funds that we need to approach things in a complex way. It's much easier to convince them to say, I have a simple, single intervention, whether it's a cash transfer or whether it's test and treat. Um, If instead that that proposal, the person proposing a single uh, response, was looked at with skepticism. I think we go, go a long way to breaking down these silos and having a much more robust response. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Deborah, Kevin, and Justin for stimulating presentations. We have uh, about 20 minutes for questions.
3: Should we move our chairs over there? Yeah,
2: we also have refreshments afterwards as
3: yeah. well. Right? Yeah. So, so yes, yeah. So, uh, incentive not to ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Can I> <coughs> yes?
4: Um, um, my first question, I was doing some reading and they tried to give an explanation on why the most in- wealthy had a higher incidence of Kate Chasley. I don't know if maybe you've read it as well
1: social factors
3: and status in society. I don't know if someone can explain that to I Yeah, okay. Should we take a few or slide? Maybe, yeah, maybe two or three questions and then will respond in. Did you have a second question yeah. there? Yeah. And the second question, I think you
1: gave the question in one of my I just wanted to know your um, the question was, will higher mortality as a result of AIDS lead to novel growth in GDP
3: Okay.
0: do you want to, do take, you want any, want to yeah. take this too? So let's one.
1: take one more and then. Also, following on about how um, the example in Tanzania when um, the rate of HIV is increasing with the wealth of um, different women in society. Has there been any um, research into sort of the kind of gender relationships, how they change within Tanzanian society?
0: Where do women become more um, kind of um, like sort of a dependent on men as they get wealthier or are they kind of more kind of economic, liberalised? Do you want to?
2: Okay, yeah, so I can. give uh, okay, yeah, you go first. Yeah, then. please uh, feel free to chip in as well, colleagues. it's basis basically, some of the reasons why the wealthy might have higher rates of HIV, um, I think Justin was kind of mentioning this idea that wealthy people are more likely to live in urban areas which have a higher background prevalence rate. Um, we can relate this to things like transactional sex, in which we have wealthier men having sex with poorer women—not always commercial sex, but sex where there is some something exchanged. Um, and again, yeah, it's about status and it's about power. You know, Justin uses the extreme example, but you know, out of, the, out, out of if we compare the sexual behaviour of you know an isolated poor rural inhabitant. compared with the uh, sexual behaviour of a successful, wealthy urban businessman, it's it's clear to see who might be having more sex, and it's not the isolated rural farmer. So, I think status is is partly to do with that. Um, Access, you know, transactional sex, you know, being able to afford, to have many, many, many girlfriends. Again, if you're poor, you're less likely to be able to have lots of different sexual partners when there is this this expectation that something is, is... Transfer to some extent. So I think those are some of the reasons um, as to why the wealthy may have high rates of HIV. It's not just the only reason. Some,
3: I mean, I don't, so I think the urban residence, is it's very highly correlated with the urban residents. So I think a lot of people argue that that's part of it. But even within, you you could look and I, and I five it's been five years now when I was looking. At, but I think if you exclude the urban, you can do that in the data. It's, you still see it. Um, the other thing I sometimes say though is, is you know, we historically we've seen certain diseases and illnesses affecting the wealthy first. And these are often lifestyle-related. So smoking-related illness originally affected the wealthiest first, and then they were the first to kind of change the behavior. Now it's more affecting the poor. Obesity as well affected the wealthy first. And so I think with, with sexual behavior as well, you know, sex is a luxury good in some ways. Um, if you have more money, it is easier to have more sexual partners or bro- broader sexual networks. Um, so that could be uh, part of it as well.
1: Thank you. Just to jump in there, I mean, to sort of adding to the point that Justin made in his presentation, I mean, there's also, if you take medical transmission seriously, the fact that wealthy people often are having more modern medical um, interventions could also mean that that's a more relevant um, uh, vehicle for, um, for raising their HIV prevalence as well. But again, we don't have good data on what that means, but it, it's worth keeping that in mind too.
3: Do you wanna, you're probably best answered. Place the, for the second question. Yeah, so growth. I mean,
1: the issue of um, the impact of AIDS, and so, I mean, we have very much focused in this in this special issue about the political economy of of, of HIV risk. And you, you're quite right. One of the things we haven't talked about is you know what is the implication. And I think that's something for a sort of different discussion. But I think you're you know you're right to question whether or not higher mortality um, is going to you know what sort of impacts that. That has, I mean, my own personal view is it does have long-run impacts. It changes the supply side of the economy and the demand side as well. And I think fundamentally, you know, raises a set of dynamics that will lead to poorer economic growth than otherwise over time. i happy to expand on that.
3: There's a, there's a lot of kind of theorising about it, but I don't know if there's a lot of research on it I mean, in terms of outcomes.
1: I mean, one of the problems with the research that is there is where it's taken place, and again, there hasn't been enough research, I think I'll join Kevin on that one, is that often it's focused on the supply side, what happens to the number of workers, what happens to the incentives to invest. I think what's um, you know been missed out, and you see it in the best research, you know, some of the best research, for example, in South Africa, has been anthropological, and it talks about well, what happens to what people do, what kind of... Um, how, did, how does... Um, High rates of spending on AIDS-related healthcare. How does it change what you know people do and you know what they buy? And you can see high rates of indebtedness. You, you can see people are beginning to concentrate their spending on healthcare, and they're not buying other things. They're not engaging in the, the economy in more positive ways. And that's something that I worry about. And we only have tiny glimpses of that, but we should be worried.
2: Can I just actually address the question around economic uh, dependence? Um, so I think you make a really good point and it's something that we touch upon in the paper. Um, I'm not the world's expert on, you know, how widespread economic dependence is across, say, you know, varying, varying levels of wealth. But what I would say, I think the, the, the challenging the poverty uh, paradigm helps us, helps us to think about how economic dependence may be different. Uh, at different levels of wealth, right? So, uh, a wealthy woman may be, you know, economically dependent on her wealthy husband for for status and for access to, to luxury goods. Uh, a poor woman may be dependent on her husband for access to very basic survival goods. So, a very simplistic, simplistic way. Now, when, now when we're thinking about interventions that are designed to address uh, economic dependence of women on men, we, uh, the international community comes up with things such as like microfinance. Now clearly microfinance is uh, an intervention that takes a very specific view of uh, HIV, and, but also economic dependence as well. It's, uh, it's the poverty related economic uh, uh, dependence and the idea that, you know, you need to give women a loan so that she can have a, a separate income and that will give her more control over her sexual behaviour or reduce the need for her to engage in transactional sex. It would be ridiculous, I think, to suggest that we need to give wealthy women uh, microfinance to reduce their economic dependence on men. Uh, uh, so I think your question helps us think about what are the different types of economic dependence and how might they be addressed by different types of HIV-related uh, policy.
3: Yeah. I, don't, I don't think people have answered it, that question as you framed it. And I think it's a really good question because it cuts to a lot of these points about how things will change and and are complicated so again you know, the idea of uh, if women are coming out of poverty how that affects their gender relationships and and then affects their sexual risk if you're looking at it from that perspective I I don't think has been really engaged that much but that's the kind of questions I think we'd be calling for more investigation at that level not just assuming that being a woman means a certain risk profile uh, but actually looking at the dynamics
0: any more questions Justin, you
1: mentioned the desirability of taking a critical paradigm or adopting a critical p- paradigm um, and then we're focusing particularly on complexity and my guess is multi-causality and they need to try to get much more fine-grained data but also in context and so on. Would you, do you have a kind of a view of what would be the most
3: appropriate critical paradigm in this sort of context? because in other settings that means you know, particularly about Marxist perspective for instance mm-hmm. and that's often
1: not about complexity and it's not about understanding multiple and direct causation yeah. yeah my guess is you're still thinking fairly quantitatively or but much more sophisticated
4: laws of quantitative
3: analysis. Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily quantitatively I mean I think um, I've written one or two other things that kind of and Kevin has as well kind of looked at this kind of social theory um, more broadly and you know we haven't cracked, you know, we with with all the focus on structuralism or functionalism or structural functionalism or structuration theory. But I think if it really the point in that paper it doesn't go into that much depth. It, it you know it's just to say let let's let's just think more critically in terms of being self you know reflective and, and asking ourselves are we capturing everything that we might need to, uh, and let's engage with, with with the broader ways of thinking. it. And I wasn't thinking you know Marxist theory as a as a single way of of doing it. Um, I mean, one could even try and run complexity theory itself, you know, and what that means in terms of things that are complicated, things that are complex, things that are chaotic. I think that provides sometimes some useful perspectives, but I wasn't pinning down one. It would be a bigger discussion to figure out. which.
2: I think as well, to, to add to that, that there is a danger with uh, an overly quantitative focus that, that we lose any theoretical content at all. And this is something that the three of us have, have written on when I was doing my PhD looking at migration and mobility. We had this constant application of a quantitative framework to here are some mobile groups, here are some non-mobile groups, who has a more sex, who has higher high rates of HIV, and we have a set of papers that haven't engaged at all with this idea that these people are even mobile, that they have lifestyles associated with their mobility, or any engagement with the broader enormous literature on, on, on migration, so you know, I think a quantitative approach can sometimes lead us to have no theory at all, and you know, we, we need a mixture of both.
1: Yeah, I mean it is perhaps a related question. So you have given several examples on how um, particular ways of thinking, theorizing and approaching uh, uh, HIV transmission and the AIDS epidemic sort of uh, um, shape the processes of uh, data collection and uh, for the quality of data. uh, Interventions and impact evaluations. So, so I'm just wondering uh, um, what uh, types of improvements uh, can be offered uh, by uh, different, uh, an alternative uh, uh, way of theorizing and understanding HIV in these areas. So, so data collection, uh, interventions, and
2: also impact evaluation something that is better than randomized controlled trials.
0: One second, there is another question at the back. Yeah, Um, I suppose kind of
2: related, um, I, I've worked in purely medical paradigm around HIV and just when you're talking about the, the prevalence rates and um, that actually we should look at incidents to see the number of okay. new infections because that would get rid of the bias. Um, I just wondered firstly if there was any data on that because all the data that I can think of that looks at incidents just looks at medical interventions and their effects on incidents like antiretroviral coverage or things so I just wanted
3: or do, you take the second question? do you want
2: to start with the second Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, so I, I should probably have uh, explained that to, to, to in my talk. But Yeah, we would rather know incidents. That gives us a much better idea of how the epidemic is developing. You're completely right. Um, there, there, there are very few uh, kind of long-term studies that actually track incidents. I mean, I think there are only three, three, yeah. Yeah, three studies. Um, one of them that I've been involved... Through, not with, but but through, is uh, this ongoing cohort study in Kisasa in Tanzania. They they haven't they they tracked incidents, but not not household wealth. Um, And again, I think there are similar issues with with the other two studies. So yeah, you're right. We're we're working with you know high level population data that's very static. It doesn't tell us much about uh, the ongoing dynamics. But as you as you know, it's uh, it's so costly to to run an incidence tracking cohort over 10, 15, 20 years, when you're repeatedly uh, testing and, and asking questions of, what, 20,000 people? You know, I mean, it's, it's a, a costly uh, exercise, but you're, you're right, that's what we would, we'd rather know that data, definitely.
3: But certainly some, some people do try and incorporate as much mm-hmm. as they can, so pure instance data from a cohort is few and far between. Uh, but certainly when I was doing my PhD a while ago, people were using as proxy indicators, for instance. They were looking at, say, um, infection rates in young women in particular going for testing at, at antenatal visits. Um, the idea being that they probably would have been infected in recent years if they're in a certain age cohort. Because at that time when there was no treatment, anyone infected at birth was dying before they were sexually active. Um, and so sexual activity was only starting in those early years. And so if you looked at prevalence in that segment, it was a good in- proxy indicator. Um, I think you'll find mathematical modelers try and put all these pieces together. So those, that's where you see people actually trying to sit down and say, "Well, what do we know about prevalence? What do we know about incidence? How can we perhaps extrapolate what they mean taken together?" And that's where you see the most sophisticated uses of it. Um, but it's a good—I mean, it's a good point, uh, you know, and a good kind of indication that social scientists work on HIV need to know their data and need to know the difference between prevalence and incidence. They need to know the time lag, you know, uh, and, and and the link to mortality, you know, and, and why a prevalence rate will or won't be falling and what you can attribute it to. Because you'll see people whether social scientists or not, but just you don't really have that epidemiological understanding talking about, oh, well, you know, prevalence, we see prevalence fall from 10 to 6% in 2003, so obviously there's something done in 2002. But you'd probably have to have something done in 1995 if you're going to see a prevalence decline in, in 2002 uh, because it takes that long for people infected with HIV, if they're untreated, to eventually develop symptoms and, and, and die. And that's the only way mortality, uh, that's the only way prevalence goes down. So you need that level of understanding, and you need that kind of cross-disciplinary engagement.
1: Um, Just to say that when I said three earlier, there were three studies that I found that are incident studies that do measure wealth. Two in South Africa, one in Zimbabwe, and one finds that the wealthiest have the highest incidence. One finds that the middle groups have the highest incidence, and the other can't find any link between wealth and HIV incidence. And so it's, that's really important, because those are, those are three studies that are in areas that are quite geographically close. And it shows that this is more complicated. We have to understand the context in which people are having sex and the, the factors that lead to risk. And trying to draw a simple story, just as Kevin has said, you know, it's, it, the data doesn't support it. So... Um, but yeah, it's a real sum. We need more incident studies and we need social scientists to be working you know, on those to ask the right questions you know, so that we have more information on wealth and, and occupation, for example. You, know, you can rarely find any data on occupation in, in any incident studies. Um, and so you really can't you know, kind of map what's, why it is that particular groups that we know from anthropological work have you know, higher risks.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think the, the, one of the takeaway messages maybe is that you know the data will never tell you an absolute fact that's generalizable and happens everywhere. So you're not going to look at it and say, okay, the wealthy have more HIV or the poor have more HIV. Because at one point in time, it might be that the wealthy have H- more HIV, like in the United States in the 1980s. Um, and then a, a decade or two later, it might be that the poor have more HIV like the United States now. Um, and it might change from a homosexually driven, perhaps, or injecting drug use to a more heterosexual um it might change for all sorts of reasons like that. So, you know, instead the message is, you know, you have what is it beyond that those data that you need to know to understand the dynamic of transmission in your in your context? And and the political economy kind of helps talk to that. What is explaining what you're seeing at this point in time, rather than does this tell us anything about wealth as a whole? Because obviously the money itself or the lack of money doesn't give you a virus. It's it's how that plays out in a particular dynamic. I, I don't want to ignore the, the first question though, because I think it's a good question about what can we do in terms of new approaches? Can we move beyond randomized control trials and the like? And it's easy. Randomized control trials you could set up, and I do often uh, as line of a, a, the proverbial straw man to knock down. I think we are seeing progress already in that. You know, many many people who do randomized control trials now for behavioral interventions incorporate what I would call process evaluation, basically asking questions about. Why is it working for some people and not for others? There's a lot more <coughs> emphasis on theory of change going in behind them now. So a lot of funders will not fund them unless you have quite clearly laid out why do you think this will work. Um, but I still think there's, you know, often they're often developed without necessarily a great deal of, of you know thinking about local context and, and local socialization. The other thing I think you're seeing changes is, you know, UNAIDS and bodies like that are talking about, they're adopting the language of structural approaches. Now, in our paper, we talk about this fear that structural approaches are going to be reduced to a package of, you know, three technical interventions. You do microcredit, you do um, cash transfers, and you do one other thing, and that's a structural intervention. But it's better than not thinking about structural interventions at all. You know, it's step by step, you make those changes. But I think we do see incremental improvements.
0: Would you like to add to Sarah's question? I mean, I was
1: thinking about that question, and I think just to change it slightly, quite, I mean, what, what we've been talking about has been the kind of set of data that um, is been used to talk about HIV incidents, and that often focuses on difference in HIV incidents among um, people in the same population in the same country. And I guess I'm going to echo people like Bridget O'Loughlin that say, well, fundamentally, there's something that is um, wrong with this methodology. So it, it, it might tell you who has the highest rates of HIV incidence in South Africa or in Tanzania or in Ghana, but what it doesn't tell you is actually why rates in South Africa are so much higher than rates in a comparable country elsewhere. And that kind of, um, the methodology for understanding why there are differences between countries, not just differences with, within them, I think is reflects sort of a different history within public health. And is one that we should go back to, um, and so I think for me that's an important um, that's an important set of questions that we haven't been asking, and linked to that is a failure in the way that we collect data and collect information. So.
0: Thank you. We have time for a very final question, if
4: anyone. Yes. I think there was one interesting the interesting thing that comes up is this non-obvious association between. HIV and income or wealth, and I, I really was struck by your your chart. So I've now heard a lot of reasons why, as you become richer, your opportunities for sexual activity increases, and that might have an effect. But you would also expect that as you become richer, you become more aware, and you take more precautions. So that's not happening. So what's your hypothesis in this condition? I take Justin's point that this is very complex specific but do you have any ideas of why that's not happening to any substantial event? Why are the top 25% of the population completely ignorant of the fact that they have to take precautions, it seems? Well, I mean, I think the the simple
2: answer is that uh, I guess a lot of them are. I mean, we, you know, this, this is the balance within, within the debate. So we, we can't assume that everybody who's wealthy will engage in protective behaviour, but Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, some will. I mean, so, you know, for some people, being wealthy will lead to lead them into a situation where they can, you know, protect their health. For others, it, it won't necessarily. So it's about different pathways and and different impacts of wealth on, on, on people within the same the same cohort. Can I just add one? Yeah, thing? yeah, of
4: course. So yeah. That, does that mean, therefore, that the biggest impact would be if you could change the behaviour of that percentile? with some some knowledge of the consequences of that behaviour I mean is that really where this is taking us
2: um, I mean I think as Justin hinted in his presentation uh, you know, UNAs uh, and the public health community have been trying to change people's sexual behaviour from, from day one of the epidemic and it turns out that actually changing people's sexual behaviour is incredibly difficult, whether you're poor or you're wealthy um, I mean this is why UNAIDS are stepping away from looking at transmission and really focusing on treatment. They've almost, I don't, I don't want to put this too strongly, so please feel feel free to tone me down, but it's almost like they've given up on transmission. They so said, we can't do that. we tried for 30 years to change people's sexual behaviour. As Justin said, it's, it's a very com- complex issue. People have sex for many, many different reasons. So, you know, rather than continuing to try and address that, we're now going to focus on you know, access to treatment, giving people drugs, you know, and some people have been advocating for drugs for everybody, not just people who are infected, but people who aren't infected, you know, give drugs to every every single person in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and, you know, no no, the virus will not be transmitted anymore, that's kind of one extreme, uh, what we call treatment as prevention, so I think we've moved away from the focus on sexual behaviour, but. Uh, I guess all I was doing was pre- presenting this data to challenge some assumptions about, I guess, the enhanced rationality of, of wealthy people.
3: I mean, it, it showed, it point, your question talks to the kind of limitations of the data and what we can actually see from it. We don't have a great answer. Because when I, when I wrote about, on some of that data, the 2010 paper you cited, it was, it was two of the Tanzanian uh, surveys. And what we saw between 2003 4 and 2007 8 was prevalence falling... The most in the highest income group and rising the most in the poorest. So instead of being that steep, it was now that steep, right? But what you showed is that subsequently it hasn't changed. It's not continuing that kind of tipping. But again, this is, these are prevalence data, and it could be one hypothesis. It could be that the wealthy are taking up safer behaviors, but they're also accessing antiretrovirals more, so they're living longer, right? That could be a hypothesis, but we don't know. Those data don't tell us that. That would make some sense. It would agree with uh, you know observations about other health conditions I talked about where the wealthy do take up, you know, safer behaviours first as they did with, you know, diet-related and smoking-related, but we don't know for sure. That's, that is where we do need more uh, research to explain it.
1: And I think just to make an net sort of an um, ending comment on that, you know, one of the issues is I think still there the, is a lot of secrecy about, um, um, about the experience of living with HIV in most settings, not just within sub Saharan Africa. And I still think we, are, we have yet to see the full impact of the high rates of HIV prevalence um, on, on, on society. So whether we can really say that people are fully aware of the risks that they experience, whether people are fully open about having experienced them, you know, I think the culture of secrecy and denialism um, is there and, you know, does have an impact. But as Kevin and Justin says, well, I'm, you know, we're hypothesising that that's the case.
0: Uh,
3: some more hands are creeping up how are we doing on time
0: (laughs) okay Uh, thank you very much for coming let's bring this to a close and please join me in thanking our speakers for fascinating